You know, you think something's going to go away just because, well, of generations, of time, everything. Well, the shootout in Medina, that that hasn't gone away. My daughters are in their 30s, and they still know everything about the shootout. In fact, Ashley uh, studied it at law school in Marquette. And, it's you know, I was just visiting with Jack Seleski, and, and his daughter studied it as well. It is part of who we are as a state, as a region, as part of the country in many cases, uh, Gordon Call and what happened 40 years ago today. I suppose I'm supposed to say 40 years ago tonight, uh, but it is that anniversary of the Medina shootout. And uh, it's just, it's it's something that we got to talk about and we're going to today. Paul Jurgens, uh, head of the news team here, news director on the Mighty 790 for years. Paul, good to have you on. My pleasure, yes. That way I know your mic's working. Uh, Jack Seleski, longtime editor with the Fargo Forum. Jack, thanks for coming in today. Nice to be here, Joel, as always. Jim Shaw, journalist in many capacities. Then you were with uh, WDAY-TV. Correct. Yep, uh, he's in. And Daryl Dorgan, uh, somebody that you saw in many roles, news director and radio, uh, obviously the lead person for years with PBS. Daryl, good to have you with us as well. Oh, it's great to be here and, and uh, find out that people like Jack Soeski are still being able to get around. <laughs> <laughs> and the first shot is taken. The first. The, the, <laughs> you're on. You're on dangerous ground, my friend. Be careful. <laughs> so, so Paul, I know that you had a lot of old sound when it comes to this. Uh, that uh, so let before we use some of that, let, let's let's just go around the table and and do this. Where were you? when this happened and i'm going to start with you daryl uh where were you when this all took place in medina i was home uh, in bismarck and uh, my wife and i were getting ready to go out and have dinner with the ap bureau chief and his wife he called us about uh, 5 30 in the afternoon and uh kind of hinted around you know we've got a problem we've got two uh, u.s a couple people killed uh, u.s marshals and, um, you know, neither of us wanted to say, hey, we don't want to have dinner. Let's we're both going to our offices, but eventually we did. And uh, so that, that's what happened. And it became a, uh, you know, a one or two year obsession, really, followed very closely. The problem was very simple. The reason it happened is the U.S. Marshals were simply outgunned, outmanned. Jack, where were you when all this took place? At that time, I was editor at the Devil's Lake Daily Journal, you know, north of where it happened, somewhat north of where it happened, following it like everyone else does, usually mostly from the uh, Associated Press dispatches, uh, and uh, decided to uh, join and uh, went down. And uh, I don't know if you all remember, those who were covering it, uh, the area had been uh, socked in with a pretty heavy fog and it lasted for a couple of days i think that fog hung in there and i remember crawling around and uh following these uh caravans of federal vehicles and uh then getting and we'll probably talk about those two news conferences that one of the uh principal um feds uh, federal people had that uh went after the media and then he later apologized but but um it was uh kind of a it certainly wasn't organized. I mean, the, there was a, uh, a media center set up in the Jamestown Sun, Jim, Jim Smarada. I don't know if some of you will remember that name was the editor then. And, and they set up a media center there. And so we were working out of the Jamestown Sun. Uh, and all of us were sending dispatches back to our various newsrooms and, and like that. So we were down there for a couple of days and then went back to Devil's Lake. Uh, Jim? Uh, I was at home and I was called and I was told, get ready because... Tomorrow, you are heading out looking for Gordon Call. I had no idea who Gordon Call was. And uh, so from that point forward, that was my story. On on Monday, we were up in the Heaton area where it looked like half the U.S. Army was out there firing into Gordon Call's house. Uh, I went into the house after the shooting was over, after the, the Army had fired all their tear gas in there, with Gordon Call's daughter, not knowing anything about tear gas, and I was overcome by the tear gas. I started burning up. And so we then went over to get some help, just get some wet cloths. Janice Call, Yori Call's wife, Yori Call at that point is in the hospital fighting for his life. He'd been shot, and she doesn't know me from a hole in the wall, and she's helping keeping me breathing okay. 
Uh, but I just remember that that house was so shot up. It was just ruined uh, with stains and broken windows everywhere, the smell, but they couldn't find Gordon. And then from that point forward, I think the next day we went to Ashley, North Dakota, where they looked there, and then we were in Jamestown. So I think I was gone from Fargo for the next week and a half. Every day I was out with law enforcement searching for Gordon Call and not finding him. Paul? I was a young reporter, didn't didn't work here at the time. I worked at KVOX in South Moorhead, and so we uh, didn't have the resources that KFGO did in those days to cover a story like this. We did what we could. Uh, much of it was done uh, remotely and with the uh, help of uh, other radio stations up and down the region, uh, Carrington, Bismarck. Um, so that's what I recall the, uh, initially. Uh, shortly after uh, the shooting, <laughs> I was hired here. And uh, they said, uh, oh, by the way, your first major assignment will be the uh, call trial. And I, I don't know if I'd ever been into a courthouse other than to maybe get a marriage license. And so uh, that was coming up in, what, May? Uh, May. It was, what was so amazing is, is a case like this today, it would, it would take two, three years before this case would have gone to trial. But it went to Not only would it quickly. take two to three years, it would never have been held in Fargo. No. It would never have been held by Judge Paul Benson, who knew the guys who were he killed and Kenneth shot. Nero, very well. And uh, Lynn Crooks would never have been allowed to be the prosecutor. There were there were just so many were ethical issues that were not brought up then that you could not get away with today. Well, I want to do this, uh, Paul. I want to make sure people understand the sounds of, of what happened that night. And I know you've prepared some of that. What do you want to run with first? Well, uh, our initial reporting at the at the time um, was that night. Uh, the shooting was 5, 36 o'clock. Uh, weather was much like it was uh, today, the, it was recently. A, yes. It was a beautiful day. For it February, was yes. like in the 40s and 50s. Uh, unheard of in the middle of February around here. I was fortunate <laughs> enough, and I mentioned this on the air the other day. We were talking about it just briefly. Um I had uh, a lot of archive tape from KFGO's coverage, and again, I had just started here uh, shortly after the shooting. Um, but uh, I was lucky enough to find some of this, and it's on cassette tapes. If anybody, younger audience, a cassette, okay? <laughs> and it, it's really amazing that these cassettes, forty years later, are still viable. The tape hasn't. Uh, I was worried going through this that I'm, I'm going to snap a tape, and uh, fortunately, uh, I did not. Uh, so I went through hours of tape here, literally. Uh, some of these are the law enforcement transmissions that we'll hear. And uh, if it, we're ready, I think we yeah, can start let, with the, start. Uh, some of the initial reporting um, from KFGO uh, news reporter Paul Newberg the night of the shooting. North Dakota is one of the most agricultural states in the nation. There's little crime, maybe a murder a year, and an occasional bank robbery, but that's about it. Before February 13th, 1983, no one in the state would ever have dreamed there could be a gun battle on the prairie. Killing, wounding, and over taxes, no less. Then came that Sunday evening in question. It was relatively mild for North Dakota, about 20 above, as I recall. It was a sleepy day. Nothing generally happens here, much less on a Sunday. But about 6 p.m., automatic weapons fire could be heard near Medina. People died. And 20 minutes later, the police scanner in our studios blurted out the initial sketchy information. KFGO went on the air minutes later with the bare fact. But as the evening went on, it became evident this was no ordinary case. We interrupted programming on a regular basis for about six hours. Around midnight, the basic pieces to the puzzle began to fall into place. By one o'clock, I was able to roll the following story off the typewriter, putting together much of what had been gleaned from the previous hours. Two U.S. Marshals are dead, two suspects are in custody, and two more suspects are at large following a gun battle near Medina, North Dakota last night, Medina is a small community about 30 miles west of Jamestown. One of the slain marshals is identified as 53-year-old Ken Muir of Fargo, while the name of the other slain deputy marshal is being withheld until relatives are notified. Another deputy marshal, 58-year-old James Hobson of Bismarck, is listed in critical condition, while a Stutzman County Sheriff's deputy and a Medina police officer were wounded, though less seriously. <clears throat> Paul. Paul Newberg of our new staff in 1983. Radio at its best, by the way. Yes, yeah. Um, was here all night, of course, working on that story. And uh, uh, so that was uh, kind of the initial word uh, uh, on KFGO and uh, uh, what had taken place early on. 
All right, we're going to go to the weather. When we come back, we'll get everybody's take on what they just heard and their memories of exactly. The first thing that jumped out at me, Paul, was because I heard this uh, as Paul was preparing it was, guys, I knew there was one fugitive. I was trying to think of who the other one was. And I don't know if that, obviously you guys who covered the story, that instantly comes to mind. But I was like, all right, who else got away, you know? But Scott Fall was on the run for a time. 40 years ago, ladies and gentlemen, the Medina shootout. Uh, Gordon Call, that's a name everyone remembers. Uh, let me just uh, set up the panel again. We've got Jim Shaw. We've got Daryl Dorgan. We've got Jack Zaleski. And we've got Paul Jurgens, all journalists at their heart and soul. I know we've got one more piece of sound we're going to play before we go to Daryl Dorgan and talk to him. Here a yes, uh, prior to the shooting, Medina Police Chief Daryl Graff asked the marshals to set up their roadblock outside the city. Uh, this is Graf's exchange with uh, Deputy Marshal Carl Wigglesworth. Uh, like, you know, a half a mile up north on that hill or something? Uh, 5205, we, there's a couple avenues of escape up that way. We just thought because them off here the railroad tracks is going to cut off their avenues of escape. No, there ain't no avenues of escape. If they go north, if you go north about one mile on top of that hill, there's a vacant farm. There's, there's no roads that can go either direction. There's lakes on both sides of the road. You'll get them up there, and there won't be nobody in town injured. Okay, that's 10-4. We'll, we'll go. So he talked him into going north. Yes, he did. Uh, I'm going to go to Daryl Dorgan. Uh, Daryl, that sound has to bring back a lot of memories for you. It does. and uh, But what also brings it, it spurs a lot of memories because state officials really didn't know what the cause of this thing was. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of speculation. The governor and another state uh, law enforcement official held a press conference. I think it was about 8, 8.30 at night and really didn't uh, have any information. They were just kind of answering some questions or trying to calm nerves, I guess. Uh, the the uh, state official involved in law enforcement called me, said, what do you know about this? And I said, uh, it's a tax problem. Uh, because we had had contact at KVMR radio with these people prior to that. And so then about a half hour later, the governor and the other law enforcement official were on the radio saying, well, we think it's a tax problem and a question over taxes and a protest over taxes. And that's when it really got going. But but uh, we had had contact with some of these people beforehand, and I had been to one of their meetings. Well, Jack, there was a cast of characters here that was amazing. Okay. Uh, uh, Jack Slesky, I know that a lot of questions have been raised about why there. Paul just brought up why there, why then. I know in, in Bitter Harvest, and you just refreshed yourself with that, there's some some speaking to that. Well, there were, there were questions at the time. There are still questions. Uh, people who um, you know routinely like to question what, what law enforcement does, I guess. But the forum had written an editorial raising, uh, dancing around the, that issue of why, uh, why it was done the way it was done. And uh, they said uh, the answer to the questions, therefore, as to why they decided to interrupt that beautiful Sunday afternoon by attempting to arrest Call must forever remain in speculation. Well, Lynn Crooks, uh, who was the lead prosecutor, Jim has recently interviewed uh, Lynn Crooks, wrote in a response to that editorial <clears throat> that appeared in the forum, and he said this, and this is uh, in uh, Jim Corcoran's definitive book about the, uh, the incident called Bitter Harvest. Corcoran was a forum reporter. Uh, it can only, the, and, and, uh, and uh, Crooks wrote this, it can only be assumed that they went there because it was their duty. That was the kind of men they were. The question as to why they attempted the arrest on an open road can best be answered with a series of rhetorical questions. What would have been a better location? At the clinic? At a supermarket? At a neighbor's home? Where did Call go that he did not take weapons with him? His wife said he even took them to church. Where could the arrest have been attempted where the potential did not exist for innocent bystanders being injured if call resisted arrest, Crooks continued. And the Reardon driveway was chosen as a scene of confrontation by call, not by the marshals, said Lynn Crooks. And I know you spoke to Lynn recently. Well, I did, I did speak to Lynn, and um, we talked about some of that. I didn't realize, he gave me one of the great quotes, how personal this case was to him because mm -hmm. these guys were his friends and he felt he was, he was doing it for them. <clears throat> As far as that day, well, really what, what triggered it 
was a deputy Brad Cap worked for Stutzman County. He saw Gordon <clears throat> Call's car at the Medina Clinic, and then and he knew there was a warrant out, and then he reported it to the marshals, who decided, okay, this is as, as good as any. But realistically, they they knew this could be trouble, but not this kind of trouble. Uh, and also, just to clarify, because like uh, Paul and Jack and Daryl, at the beginning, we really didn't know, like, who are these people and what's going on? And then we found out the background, that they're protesting against taxes and whatnot. Gordon Call had been in prison for not filing his taxes. He was then released on probation, went out on probation, still didn't pay his taxes. But the big thing was, when you're out on probation, you have to report to a probation officer and you have to report to the courts, and he didn't do it. So the reason they were out to arrest him is because he violated the terms of his probation. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to well, – here's the thing. We're just going to keep going around the table because the, all of these four have so much information when it comes to this 40 years ago. And, and I have to tell you, you know, driving by Medina, as much as what I do, every time I drive by Medina, I think of it. I, I do. I And maybe that next generation, maybe that generation after me, or maybe two generations after me, maybe it'll take my grandkids not to think of it. But I know my daughters do as well. You drive by Medina, and you think of that night. Welcome back to News and Views. Again, we've got Daryl Dorgan with us. We've got Jim Shaw with us. We've got Jack Seleski with us, and we've got Paul Jurgens. All journalists, all of them with memories of what happened 40 years ago Tonight, uh, which was the shootout in Medina, Paul, you've got some more sound for us. Yeah, this uh, by this time in the uh, standoff uh, and, and shooting, uh, Deputy Marshal Bob Cheshire, who died, um, he was shot initially and then was later shot in the head. He yells for help here. Uh, Carl Wigglesworth, the Deputy Marshal, um, is updating state radio communications in Bismarck, and this is where all the communications go through for uh, state uh, agencies and um a state trooper uh, heads up to that scene, knowing that he's needed there. And then Wigglesworth uh, confirms uh, his earlier message uh, to state radio. For those people who might have struggled listening to that or not understanding what just happened. Well, 5205 is uh, Deputy Marshal Carl Wigglesworth, who um, I became friends with later in, in life. Uh, knew Carl quite well. Um, died in 2005. Uh, but essentially, the shooting had taken place. Um, they were asking for assistance uh, from other uh, surrounding law enforcement agencies. Prior to that, and uh, this is my mistake here, I should have jumped to this cut uh, before the uh, previous uh, sound. Uh, this is as the scene intensified as uh, Cheshire, Deputy Marshal Cheshire, asked Marshal Muir for backup while uh, James Hobson uh, screamed for the others uh, to move in. So let's go to that one. Uh, where are they? North of the vehicle? East of the vehicle? Well, straight up right at the top of that hill there. Uh, uh, Carl, we're going to have the SO unit with us. The PD unit should be with you, and then we're going to check it out. Stand around outside. You're going to have to stop both these vehicles. We're bringing up the rear. you got two station wagons coming at you. He was wearing blue and blue, blue jacket, blue pants. We're behind the second station wagon. We're just crossing the tracks. Then for Coming in, they got three carvings. Ten calling units. Rear. 
gonna drop them. We're doing that. They're not doing it. Let's call in some more units. 10 4. 10 4. Is arm coming? Permission to call in more units, Ken? Ken, can I call in more units? Come on, we need them closer. Pull them in closer. Pull them in closer. We're looking right in the face of these guys. Let's go. You guys reading us? We got one behind a telephone pole. We got one in the station wagon, one in the, the, the Hornet. Copy? Ken, can we call some more units in? Ken, you there? Call, you want to give me Ken, please? Ken? Hey, you guys. Bring yourselves up here. We're staying out looking these guns right in the face. Come up behind them. You've only got one point in your direction. We've got two points in our direction. Get in the damn car and move this way. So there, uh, that was James Hobson, I believe, at the end there, uh, telling the other units uh, to move in. Um, Ken Muir in that exchange uh, with uh, Bob Cheshire uh, before the shots uh, rang out there. I was going to say, Jergy, um, I remember they played all these tapes during the trial, yes. and especially the part where Cheshire says, officer hit, yes. officer hit, let's go, guys, I'm hit bad. Right. And then Carl Wigglesworth calls in to see that he's got two dead fellow officers and one very severely injured. I remember the courtroom was completely silent and there were a lot of tears. It was it was maybe the most chilling thing I've ever heard in a courthouse and maybe the most emotional reaction I've ever seen in a courtroom. Well, they had a number of exhibits during the trial, too. And uh, one of the vehicles at the marshals, uh, well, they, I believe Muir was driving a nondescript Dodge Diplomat, if I recall, but uh, the marshals out of Bismarck, Hobson, and Cheshire were driving this Ram Charger. And, it, it, you know, it's an SUV, a Dodge Ram Charger in the day. And the door of that Ram Charger, which was full of bullet holes, I believe was in the courtroom most of the trial, um, or at least a good part of it. And uh, the jury, of course, would see that bullet hole-filled door of that Ram Charger every day. Uh, Daryl, when you hear that sound, I mean, how how much memory comes? How many memories come back to you? A lot of it. First of all, there's a couple of things that need to be said. Uh, Cheshire was executed. He was shot in the head, uh, in upper neck, three times, and he was simply executed at very close range by Gordon Call. Keep that in mind. Yuri Call may well have fired the first shot. He was behind a telephone pole. However, the first shot may also have been fired by one of the U.S. Marshals, which he could have done because they were being surrounded. It brings back just a lot of memories, and and there are a lot of things that that uh, uh, just I like I I have a connection with Yuri Call. I write to him. He writes back. He answers some questions. He to this day now is filing another appeal. He lost one recently. So did uh, Mr. Fall, and he claims the car was not registered to his his dad. It was registered to his mother. The car that they they thought. He also thinks that there was a spy the room, the thing was a setup. Uh, there's a lot of things here that aren't being dealt with with reality even 40 years later. But keep in mind that there was a very close-up execution using an M14 rifle. That is not the kind of thing that you do. It was a psychotic break with reality by Gordon Call, and and uh, don't forget it. That's how it started. Daryl, is there any admission at all from Yuri Call that uh the, the role that he played in all this? Because I know there, there was a lot of talk about that during the trial, how they were trying to pin everything back to Gordon. Uh, Yori says he did not fire the first shot. The first shot was fired by one of the U.S. Marshals, and it hit him in, in a pistol that he was carrying on his chest. Uh, and it's a 50-50 deal. Uh, but he, he still believes in the tax protest movement all of this stuff, he bought what is called the red pill. Completely when he was about 16 years old, he bought the red pill, went down the rabbit hole and has never come out and neither has uh, Mr. Fall. Uh, so, Jim, I know, you, I know you disagree with... Uh, I do not believe it is a 50-50 deal. Uh, the evidence is clear that the first shot was fired by Yori Call and that first shot hit Robert Cheshire and Bradley Cap. We'll tell you that. He was an officer there. Steve Schnabel, who was hardly an ally of the law enforcement, who was very upset about what happened, he says 
it was Yori Call who fired first. Then Daryl is right in the sense that after Cheshire is hit and he's wounded, then Gordon Call comes along and finishes him off and executes him. But the evidence is overwhelming that Yori Call fired first, and he's the one who hit Robert Cheshire first, and that's when all the shooting started from all directions. Daryl, I want to make sure you get a chance to respond to that. Well, I'm not going to argue with him because it well could have been. I mean, nobody, nobody really knows. I mean, there's an argument about this, and, and the law enforcement people think that Yori Call fired the first shot. I I don't necessarily disagree with him. Yori Call is a guy that says he didn't. And remember, towards the end of the trial, that pistol was mailed back, and it was uh, subsequently given to the jurors. It had, uh, was examined in the jury room and had fingerprints all over. We're never going to really know for certain, but I, I also think it was... You already called that fired the first shot. He was a young kid. He was behind a pole. He had a pistol. He had a rifle. Uh, things were getting tense. And uh, I, I suspect he did fire the first shot. Yes. Yeah, so I'm not going to argue with Jim Shaw. I, you, know, you know, it almost at this point, uh, given the history and the conflicts that uh, people, depending on their point of view, uh, and also their knowledge of, of what happened, uh, during the time of the shooting and all, that's all going to be debated forever. But it was inevitable. It was inevitable. Some kind of an incident with these folks was inevitable, whether it happened uh, the way it did happen or something later on. And when you read the letter uh, that Gordon Call sent from Texas, they believed when he was still on the run, and what it says, uh, his beliefs, uh, what he had bought into uh, about what he thought the co- was happening to the country was not new. It was part of his life, and it became part of the family's life. It is the way they saw the world uh, as a battle between good and evil, as a battle between their view of what the Constitution said and what it really says. And, uh, and so the violence that ensued, uh, while it was shocking and still is shocking when we, when we think about the details— um, was not should not be a real surprise in the context of what these people believed and what a lot of people around them believed and what a lot of people today still believe. But, uh, Jack, Jack, you're working out of yeah, Devil's Lake and you're covering the story. Yes, and yes. and uh, Daryl, you're working out of Bismarck and you guys are working out of Fargo. Did you ever at night, going back and forth, ever just get that eerie feeling like, I really shouldn't be here? I'm curious, Jack. Well, before... You know, we were in the midst of, remember, the farm crisis of, uh, of that time. And it was a real thing. I mean, people were losing, they were losing an average of, what, three farms a day, I think, in North Dakota at that time. And so there was real hurt, economic hurt and social, cultural hurt in the rural community in North Dakota. Before this happened, I remember going to meetings in places like Edmore and Church's Ferry up in the Devil's Lake area with farmers uh, Tax protesters is, is what is what they were, and protesting the way the federal government was not uh, doing anything to help them, and they were losing their farms. And they these were people I knew. You know, I'd see them in town. I'd see them at church and whatnot. And here they were coming into, I think it was the Curling Club at Edmore at the time, and they were armed to the teeth. And uh, they were debating whether or not I, yeah. could, I could stay there. They didn't want me there. And this happened in several small yeah. towns around that area. So you had this, this atmosphere— that was seething and seething and seething and getting worse and worse. And Gordon Call and his family, the people around him, uh, became um, almost a symbol and heroes, heroes uh, to uh, an awful lot of these people um, who uh, were really feeling the uh, pain from the farm crisis. Go ahead, Daryl. Okay, look, a lot of these people who were feeling the pain were good, straight people who had taken the advice of Earl Butts and planted her fence row to fence row. <laughs> That's Remember right. That That's right. Okay. Okay. They had, they had critical financial problems because of what they'd been led into by the U.S. government. Uh, but at the same time, then, ultra, ultra right-wing groups that today you can call the, the Order, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, QAnon, picked up on this and and started going around and talking about the illegality of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which allows the income tax, the fact that you, quote, have sovereignty, the government can't do a thing to you. What you had was you had a group, and Gordon Call was one of them, 
who were schizophrenic. They were simply schizophrenic individuals, and a lot of them are still out there. And and uh, this was a psychotic break. Once they got once they got cornered and they were going to pick up Gordon Call, he was convinced, and Yori will tell you this, that they were going to kill him. And uh, and so he wasn't going in peacefully. Uh, but but there were a lot of these people, and still are, who have mental problems. And who are they? They're the same people who broke into the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jim Shaw about that. We're going to talk to him about being a young reporter out there. I'm going to raise the same question to him I did to Jack Zaleski, which is these guys are out there doing their job as journalists, but they're driving around on some dark roads at night while a fugitive is out there on the loose who doesn't like media as well. Keep that in mind. More coming your way here on News and Views. I want to go back to, uh, before we use some more cuts, I want to go back to Jim Shaw. Uh, Jim, I want to raise the same question to you. You're out there. You're traveling the back roads. You're covering this story. Your thoughts at that time? It was scary. Uh, we went into Medina shortly after the shootout. It was clear we were not wanted. People were not friendly to us. They didn't want to talk about anything. Uh, meanwhile, I am dealing and talking to relatives of Gordon Call, as I mentioned, Janice Call and the daughter, uh, and friends of and relatives of David Brewer, who was uh, one of those convicted in this case, and it was just frightening and alarming. I had never heard this mindset before that it was okay not to pay taxes, that it was okay to f- kill federal officers, and they considered themselves real patriots, and it was a real eye opener. And I just remember being. Uh, alarmed and being a little afraid and having to watch what I say so as not to upset them. Uh, Because up until this shootout, I had no idea this mindset existed in the United States, let alone in our backyard. And then I saw how prevalent it was. You could see it at the trial when they had all these supporters. Uh, It's out there and it's still out there. And uh, it can be very frightening to those who have a different point of view. Paul, I know you have some more sound, too. Yes, uh, and I will, uh, just to dovetail on what Jim said, um, some of the people that were associated with the case, you were successful in talking to some, but I was unsuccessful in talking to others who, who even though they're still around, um, they're fearful of, if they talk about this case, that they may be a target in the future, and that uh, I, I encountered that more than once. Well, I, I, I have some fears after what I just did with the forum uh, that... It could be a target on me. I'm hoping my fears are unjustified, but I felt the story needed to be told. A search for Gordon Call led investigators to his uh, home near Keaton, North Dakota, near Minot. Uh, and uh, prior to that, or about that time, his wife, Joan Call, made a tearful plea for him to turn himself in. I'm here to do just one thing, and that is to appeal to my husband to give himself up and surrender before anybody else gets hurt. Please, Gordon, please, they won't hurt you. I've been treated real well here. Our son is in critical condition. Two men are dead. Others are going to be hurt. I don't want you dead, too. Please, I I can't take any more. That was at the federal courthouse, as I recall, Jim. Yes. Uh, They paraded her out. Right. The U.S. And attorney's of course they office. And yes. because Joan Call was also being prosecuted, yes. so this would work, just help her if she cooperated with the government this way. And it did with the jury. Yes. Well, when we get back, I want to talk about the trial. I want to get a chance to go to the point where, you know, and, and just historically, we still haven't got everybody in jail yet here, right? I mean, Scott Fall is still on the loose, or where's he at in this no, whole he's, thing? No, he's in prison. Yes. Well, he's already in jail? Yes. All right. Yep. So when she made that plea, everybody she's had been arrested other than Gordon. Okay. Right. Uh, I, I know he's but, still but in prison we, now. But we, he he gave up the Can name. we just do no, no, something on. about the Daryl, I've got to get to a break here, and then when we come back, we're going to do some of that. Uh, we're going to touch upon Joan. We're going to go over the trial. Uh, I'm just trying to get a chronological order of when there's only one person on the loose. So stick around. More coming your way.
Welcome back to News and Views. Uh, Joel Heitkamp here, your host. Abby Miller, your producer. Jim Shaw with us. Daryl Dorgan with us. Jack Seleski with us. And Paul Jurgens. Those are names you know. If you live here in the Upper Midwest, you know them quite well. We're talking about the 40th anniversary of the shootout in Medina. And we just played some sound from Joan Call pleading with her husband to give uh, himself up. Paul? Uh, yes. And well, obviously it didn't. Uh, he didn't hear that or didn't uh, care listen to his wife but by that time we don't know where he was I mean there were reports that he was in Ashley North Dakota that area Richland County there were reports that he yep. spent some time there and of course uh, later in the, uh, he was uh, captured in um, in Arkansas everybody so. was looking at where there was a posse presence and certain people in the in your community or they'd be support for him exactly yes. yep. and and the kind of this underground railroad of posse commentatus type atmosphere you know now jim uh covering the trial joan call was was on trial but was later acquitted and we talked uh, before the break about how this tearful plea uh, did help her with the u.s attorney's office and the prosecution well to be honest with you i i thought it was a farce that they put joan call on trial i thought they were piling on uh and the reason I say that is because I was at the trial every day. There was not one bit of evidence introduced against her. There was not one witness who testified against her. Uh, I, I'm sitting there the whole trial thinking, why is this person on trial being prosecuted when they are not at all attempting to prove a case against her? The other three, sure. But Joan Call made no sense. I think it was just like we talked about for leverage, maybe to try to get Gordon Call to give himself up or try to have make it sure. easier with others, but uh, there was no there was no logical reason, there was no legal reason to prosecute Joan Call. She I was just there. I want to get to yeah. Daryl Dorgan. Daryl, your thoughts on that? Well, listen, I think she was sincere. Uh, the statement that she made, no question about it. I have always wondered too why they put her on trial, and uh, but but do keep in mind that that uh, she had, you know, thoughts, and there's nothing wrong with having thoughts, but she bought the red pill a long time ago, too. Later on, after Gordon Call died, she did marry another anti-Semitic and, and racist guy in California, and that uh, marriage lasted for a number of years, and uh, he's a guy who led a national organization that, you know, with members that are running from reality, seeking cultural degeneracy, and walking around wearing caps and jackets rather than white sheets, she she married him next, and she went on and, but and later. Wrong with having ideas. Well, later in life, she went on the on the crazy circuit and and uh, and spoke, you know, to these right wing groups about uh, her husband and how he was right yeah. and how she was right. So she, you know, she had to, you know, drink the Kool Aid, as they say. I, I remember so. a night here at the Fargo Holiday Inn. The room was packed. Yes, uh, she came and spoke to that room, and and she was one of the heroes of the evening mm -hmm. with that whole posse movement. And as you guys pointed out, it's still there. Yeah. It's still there, and as, as Daryl pointed out quite well, you saw the face of it in many cases on January 6th. Uh, Paul, you have some more? Uh, well, just back to the trial. I talked earlier about some of the exhibits that were left in the uh, in the courtroom during the trial, which, you know, they could come and go. But that the door of the Ram Charger, it was mm -hmm. there most of the trial. And I think the excuse was, was well, you know, it's heavy, and we'd have to, we're going to talk about it. But they left it there. Um, security at the courthouse was, you know, for, for our standards, was very tight. And one thing that, in, in a, I guess, in an attempt for a mistrial, someone planted a gun. Do you recall that, Jim? In a dumpster. Well, it was near West Acres, yes, wasn't it? Well, yes, in a dumpster, I believe. It came up during well, the trial. Yeah, it they came found up, a gun. Right. And that became yeah. a big deal. Yes. And yeah. uh, they found you know, a gun. And the jury you know, calls gun. It was Yori Call's gun? And it was, yeah, it was Yori's pistol, and it was sent back to North Dakota by Gordon Call. Incidentally, he was in Ashley following the shooting. A day later, he went to Ashley, uh, and Scott Fall, and he had been hiding in a barn. And then he, uh, Fall, gave himself up. Gordon Call went to Ashley, and then he went to Timberlake, South Dakota, and spent time with a guy whose name, I don't know if he's still alive or not, his name, but I think he spent time with a guy. Byron Dale. Byron Dale. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. 
Yeah, and I called down there and talked to him because I had interviewed him a couple of times, and I found out later, or was told later, that call was in in the house when I called down there. So that's that's where it went, and then he just simply drove south. Paul, you have some more sound? Yes, um, we can get to the conviction. Uh, and uh, speaking here is. Uh, if, if we're going to get to the conviction, okay. to speaking, I want to go through the trial a little bit. Okay, okay right. you mentioned that it was very, very secure, uh, you know, in terms of what we were used to then. Obviously, oh. times have changed now, but, uh, you know, I, I want to go to individuals like, Jim, you were in the, the room. And Paul right. mentioned time and time again, having been in that room, you know, that you've got a, you've got a door from the RAM that's sitting there and they get to look at each and every day. But you mentioned the fact that, in today's world, that trial never would have been allowed to take place here. It never would have had all the, the personal connections that you had with the judge and with the prosecutor. And Absolutely not. It's stunning that they allowed it to be in Fargo, that Paul Benson was the judge, that Lynn Crooks, good friends with the victims, was the prosecutor. Uh, but this all worked to the advantage of the prosecution. Well, the, the reason I bring this up, though, is because, Daryl, I know that you speak to Yori every now and then. And, you know, to me, he his appeals keep getting over, you know, no, you're not going to be able to appeal. You know, I'm not saying he shouldn't be sitting in federal prison. In fact, I he wouldn't have wanted me on that jury. OK, that being said, hasn't those cases that, that these gentlemen just made uh, been put into the appeal process? I mean, why wasn't any of those under yeah. consideration daryl they, they have been they've been considered but you know the cla the classic one is the judge himself was the godfather to one of the u.s marshals that was killed but, you know that you, you would never allow a judge who'd been godfather to a person that been, whose son had been killed <clears throat> to be in charge of the jury i mean or in charge of the case and there were other things like that too that that, that didn't really add up but they keep appealing uh, frankly, I have told him that maybe he should uh, change his appeal process and start saying, look, I'm sorry what I did. I don't believe in this kind of thing anymore, uh, this kind of tripe. And, and uh, he doesn't buy it. He, he's still down the rabbit hole, and so, so is Scott Paul. In their defense, they are very bright, but they are also very guilty. Uh, Jack, a text message comes in, and it says, these guys are thought of as heroes still out there to this day for many folks. Oh, yeah, I think they are. And, uh, you know, they don't go under different names and different organizations, and uh, they get elected to office, as we've seen. And so, yeah, it's still out there. Uh, and the organization is maybe not as, what's the word I'm looking for, in your face as it was uh, during that during the farm crisis and uh, during the run-up to the, to the shooting. Uh, but there is a network, and uh, we've seen it uh, maybe not shooting people, uh, but certainly exercising <clears throat> political power. So, uh, I mean, it's there. Who was bringing up Rudy Giuliani? Was he I was. Jack? Well, I, this comes out of Jim Corcoran's book, and I didn't realize this had happened, but it came very close. Uh, the Justice Department was really, the U.S. Justice Department was really on this one because you had, you know, you had two two people killed. And, uh, and so they wanted to make sure there was an ironclad case and that the prosecution team uh, was the best it could possibly be. And so Giuliani, who was second uh, second in command or second ranking person in the Justice Department at that time, you know, the Rudy Giuliani we, we see now, who's turned into something less than an honorable fellow, but um, he came to Fargo. Uh, for a briefing on this thing, got a briefing, went back to Washington. Several, let, me, let me just read this as it's written in uh, Jim Corcoran's book. Several days later, Giuliani further emphasized the point of the Justice Department's interest by sending one of his senior trial lawyers to again assess the situation with the idea of taking on the responsibility of trying the case. In other words, taking, on the res taking it away from Webb and uh, Crooks. Giuliani's envoy, a fellow named Lawrence Lippi, was a man short on pleasantry, uh, short on pleasantries. Uh, he had uh, been one of these guys who'd fired uh, prosecution teams in other parts of the country if he didn't think they uh, uh, measured up. If he felt he, Lippy, could best handle the case, he wouldn't hesitate to take over in Fargo, he said to Webb, to Rodney Webb. But following Crook's presentation that day, Lippy leaned back in his chair looked at the attorneys gathered around the table and told them, you people have your act together. You will lead the prosecution. Webb was relieved. 
and it went on from there. So it came close to uh, someone from yeah. uh, to take over, and it would have might have been a different kind of trial. I doubt it. I think the outcome would have been the same. But Webb and Crooks and uh, would not have been the lead. Go ahead, Daryl. And, and Jim, Jim and Jack are two of my favorite columnists, incidentally, and they're, they're both personal friends. But, uh, for instance, uh, the, the attorneys representing uh, the people who were charged had U.S. Marshals that were sitting behind them, big U.S. Marshals, for most of that trial, which also had an emphasis on the jury. I mean, there were just a lot of things that weren't quite right. But no, no question in my mind that the, the, the people who were convicted were guilty. We're talking about the 40th anniversary of the Medina shootout. I've got Jim Shaw with me. I've got Daryl Dorgan. I've got Jack Seleski and Paul Jurgens, all from different forms of medium. But uh, we're talking a little bit about that trial now. We're, we want to get inside that courtroom. And I'm going to kick it to you, Jim. Well, I vividly remember the trial. What I thought was the most brilliant thing was Prosecutor Lynn Crook saying right off the bat, we're not here to say who shot whom, because they really didn't know. Uh, they, they know who killed Bob Cheshire, which was first Yori Call and then Gordon Call, but they didn't know who fired the shots that killed Ken Muir, that hit Deputy Marshal James Hobson, that hit uh, Deputy Sheriff Brad Cap, and hit Medina Police Officer Steve Snobble. So all, we, all he was saying was, we know they fired shots, and we know these guys were hit, and it doesn't matter who fired the shots to hit a given individual. And that worked wonders with connecting to the jury. So that, that took that issue off the plate, and I think that went a, a strong way towards getting the convictions. Who did the defense put up on the stand? They put up Bud Warren. Yes, um, a deputy marshal at the time. Because he went up and said he refused to arrest Gordon Call because he knew how dangerous it was. Under this, this type of circumstance. Under the, right, under the circumstance, basically sending the message out that these marshals should have known better. Mind you, Call was wanted, but they should have known better to leave him alone because they should have known that they, there might have been a shootout. Well, they were coming out of an amped-up meeting about protests and the, yeah. the tax movement. And I think that uh, Marshal Warren at the time had some sort of a relationship. He knew of Gordon Call, and I don't know whether he knew him, you know, closely, but he knew that there was a better way to take him, perhaps at the cafe in Carrington or at the grocery store when he was shopping with uh, with Joan, uh, which was, you know, weekly, and they could have probably gotten him that way uh, without the other people other people there. It was just those two. Well, you talk about how it was it – was, uh... It was a Stutzman County deputy that said Gordon Call is in Medina tonight. Right. And then the marshals got word and the marshals came and, and you know, exercised the warrant or attempted to, right? How much recon had been done on this man? Because here's my question. How in North Dakota, everybody knows where you're at and who you are. I mean, he was living here. I mean, did, did, were they shocked that he was in Medina? Were they Had they been searching for him before that or they just chose not to arrest him before that? I don't think it had been uh, a real top priority. But when they found out, here's our guy at a given place at a given time, that moved it up as, all right, let's go get him. Okay. But I don't think they had actively been going after him. So, he had not been fugitive number one. So who else other than Warren did they put on trial? Did Joan speak on the trial, at the trial? I don't remember that she did. I don't think so. I don't believe so. Uh, Yori spoke. Yori what, did, what did he say on stand? He denied starting the shooting, and um, he criticized the system and criticized the federal government. Uh, I don't think he really did himself any favors. So, in other words, Daryl, nothing's changed from Yuri. What he was saying then, he's still saying to this day. No, no. Yeah, yeah, no, he he, he uh, bought into it entirely, and, and uh, so did Fall, and they're still living that life today, and... Uh, you know, no question about it. Interestingly enough, you know, I know you're talking about the trial, but there was more than just taxes that were talked about at the meeting in Medina. And, and one, of, one of the things, and this shows you what kind of people a lot of them you're dealing with here. They, one of the discussions was whether or not they could form their own township and declared a white-only enclave. In other words, if you, if you were of a different race or a suspect religion, you could not live there. 
All right, so you're not dealing with, you know. That's true. So whole, this, the, um, the point being, this wasn't just Jack about taxes. This this was no. right. This was about ideology. No, this was a as I right. said as I said earlier, this was a a, a rather broad based um, social and cultural movement that saw the world in black and white. And the black were the bad guys, and they were bankers, and uh, you know the Jewish conspiracy, and the gov- the federal government, and, and and the and the good guys were the people who read the Constitution in a in their their own very, you know, narrow and uh, wrong way, but they bought into it, and uh, and it was there were there was the racial component, there was the religious component, huge religious component. When you read what Gar- Gordon Call wrote in that letter from Texas, uh, and uh, that translated into. Um, justification for violence when we come back we're going to get some more paul jurgen sound that he put together we're going to talk about the conviction uh and what happened post-conviction and what's still going on today stick around more coming your way welcome back to news and views joel heitkamp your host abby miller producing and we've got jim shaw who is working in tv we've got daryl dorgan who is working in radio then on to tv we've got uh jack zaleski who was a well, longtime editor with the fargo forum we got paul jurgens the news director here which by the way award-winning i got that in whether you like it or not paul but uh, i know you've got some sound uh from uh, the the verdict, the way it sounds. The trial began just weeks, really. I mean, a couple of months after. Three the, months. Three months after after the shoot. Three months, you guys. That's ridiculous. That's just That amazing. would never happen today. No. And it was three weeks, roughly. The Constitution. And does, it was a three-week trial. Does right. call for quick justice. You know, this, is, <laughs> this was quick. Speedy trial. Yeah, yes. Speedy trial. Uh, so it was May. Uh, I don't, May of 83. The exact mm-hmm. date. But you recall in fall were convicted uh, in the deaths of... Uh, Muir and a deputy marshal, Cheshire, Lynn Crook's assistant U.S. attorney. Obviously, the jury concluded that uh, there wasn't adequate time to think prior to shooting, I guess. Uh, that would be my evaluation of it. But very clearly, they had no trouble at all with the concept of uh, malice aforethought and the other elements of murder. And uh, that, I think, we proved very conclusive. Jack, I know there's a, a number of comments by Lynn later on. Well, you know, later on, uh, 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 Lynn Crooks was interviewed for uh, Jim Corcoran's book, and uh, one of the questions was, does he, did he understand uh, the context of this uh, awful, awful thing, this awful incident uh, with the farm crisis and the uh, farm foreclosures that were going on and all this, and said, and, and Crooks said this, he says, although he strongly disagreed with the message the extremists, Gordon Call and company, uh, offered to farmers, Crooks understood its appeal. He had grown up in the belief that the American farmer was the last of the rugged free spirit individualists and that as long as he didn't bother anybody, he shouldn't be bothered, especially by the government. And Crooks is quoted here, he says, all of a sudden, in a certain sense, our tax pro- we, we all are, in a certain sense, tax pro- protesters at heart. We don't like taxes. We don't enjoy paying taxes, he said. But as much as we spit, sputter, mutter, complain, and write to our local congressmen, we pay them rather than die on the cross. We see a need for them. But Gordon Call, at some point, separated himself from that logic. He went on strike, so to speak, and zeroed in on an antisocial and violent philosophy, and that can't be allowed by society, said Lynn Crooks. We talk. Then, ab- oh, go oh, ahead. I just got to pick. I interviewed uh, Lynn Crooks from my series just a few months ago, and uh, Lynn was still right, very strong with his convictions when he said to me, "Quote: Justice was done. The mm-hmm. message was: you have to pay your taxes. You cannot murder U.S. marshals because you don't want to pay your taxes." End of quote. Daryl, your thoughts on that? Well, Jim is right. And and uh, that's the only thought I would have. I mean, they, you know, they're still walking. There's still people walking around this country saying the 16th Amendment is not legal. Come on. Give me a break. Huh. You know, some of the stuff. And keep in mind also that there were people involved in this movement that were out there selling packets to farmers who were in economic distress for another $500 saying, hey, you file this and claim sovereignty and the government can't touch you. 
there were people that were in, in that venue that were making money off of these people too. So, so not, not always innocent. So. I'll add this about Lynn Crooks. You know, you talk about, you know, people that, that for many people, Gordon call ended up being a hero for some people, Butch Cassidy kind of a thing. Lynn Crooks was from Hankinson. He came to Hankinson a lot. His brothers, uh, one of them, I got to know really well, actually two of them. And the, when you mention Lynn Crooks and Hankinson, there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of pride. Very intelligent, hardworking, what he did in this trial. Uh, you know, we it, just the opposite of this whole Gordon call could be a hero to some. Lynn Crooks put these guys away. And in Hankinson, I don't think he would have had, been able to buy a beer. Uh, he was pretty popular back in our country. So, Jerry, you got a little more sound for folks? June of uh, 1993, Gordon Call uh, finally... Uh... I finally caught up with him near Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, a hail of gunfire. Uh, he exchanged uh, shots with the uh, sheriff there, Gene Matthews, and both men died. Dan Coker, a police spokesman at Walnut Ridge near the shootout scene, says it appears the blaze was started intentionally, apparently to flush out the fugitive. The house was set fire, and uh, the house was surrounded by law enforcement people. And no one was observed leaving the house. After it burned, they brought uh, equipment in to put uh, the blaze out so they could uh, go into rubble and see what they could find, and a body was found. And, um, but it hasn't been confirmed whether it is Gordon Call? No, positive identification will be made by probably the FBI. Coker says the house Call apparently died in was located about 75 miles northeast of Little Rock. It was described as a fortress. Police arrested two people who owned the home. Leonard and Norma Ginter will apparently be charged with harboring a fugitive. Now, as I recall... That sounds like a young Paul Jurgen uh, voice. Uh, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, 40 years ago. Um, it kind of surprised me, but authorities, they, they admitted that they set the house on fire. I mean... Oh, yeah, to, to flush him out. But, yeah. Well, and, and the, I, this, the story that's being told now differs from the story then the story that's being told now well right there that is that our is, officers said yeah they set the house on fire yeah, right is <laughs> yet sheriff matthews goes into the house along with two other law enforcement right. people he sees gordon call hiding behind a refrigerator yes the yep. two fired at each other almost simultaneously they hit each other matthews hits call in the head he dies instantly matthews is hit in the heart He's still surviving. He's crawling out. He out yes. And so as he's crawling out of the house, the SWAT team that's outside the house sees that Matthews is out, so they feel he's safe, and they do have no clue about Gordon Call, so they assume he's still alive and well in the house, and that's why they just opened fire and set the house on fire because they thought Gordon Call was still alive in the house at that time. Now, as I was listening back to some of this archive sound, uh, the house burned for an hour and a half, and there were tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition that went off while the yeah. house burned, and, mm -hmm. and there were multiple, so, multiple explosions. This right. is about the fifth text message I've gotten on this. So somebody jump in. If Somebody says, please ask your panel if they heard that they actually dug Gordon up years later to check his dental records. And I've gotten a number of these. Anybody hear anything like that? No, well, I heard he was abducted by aliens, uh, and then he was brought back later. Then he died, and then they dug him up. So you got all those Come same on. type of rumors. Come on. Uh, you know, Daryl... Daryl, when you were when you were covering this mm -hmm. and you looked at it, was was there ever a time that you thought he, Gordon was just going to get away that they were never were going to catch him? No, no, no. He he uh, he was going to be caught, and he was either going to prison for the rest of his life, or he was going to die in a shootout. And I always thought that he would die in a shootout because he had always warned people. And again, I think he had critical mental problems, and uh, uh, you know, so that that's that's what it was. I I just didn't think that uh, he he would ever survive this after what he had done, and you know, he'd been on television in Texas. I actually think he'd been on television in North Dakota on the KX network at one point talking about don't pay your taxes. That's why the federal government went after him. After his conviction, he goes on television and radio and talks about don't pay your income taxes, don't pay your... They're not going to let that stand. Jack, did you ever think he was going to get away? 
No, I thought that the uh, the the federal government was so focused, so uh, you know, laser focused on getting this guy. They'd get him one way or another, as Daryl just described. But I don't agree with Daryl that he was mentally, you know, and I don't know. He's never was examined, I imagine, but that he was, you know, had some sort of mental problem. That sort of gives him an excuse. I think he was just a bad guy who made bad decisions. And uh, you know, you you throw in the mental factor, you sort of give him a break. And I won't do that. Jim, did you he ever was think examined you... uh, mentally dumb in Texas uh, <laughs> when he was in the penitentiary? And, uh, yeah, well, they they said that he had real psychotic tendencies and uh, just uh, there were other issues too. But uh, they they said there were some mental problems. Jim, did you ever think he was going to get away? I did. Uh, unlike the others, I was quite surprised that they found him because it was clear that he had a huge network across this country of people who support him and would hide him. And I'm, I'm still curious. I, I don't know if it's ever come out how they found him, but uh, I thought he was well-protected and I thought he would be hidden for the rest of his life. Well, he made it a long way, all the way to Arkansas. Made it all so the way. Certainly but, had a but I thought, weren't the Ginters on the Fed's radar? Yes, they were. Right. Yes, so, they were. So, how, you know. how long was it yeah. from the shootout to when they got him? Oh, four months. Four, four months. months. Yeah, four months. Okay. So it, it he was gone for a while. The Ginter, Go ahead, Daryl. Yeah, the Ginter's daughter, I think, I think it was their daughter who turned him in for the $25,000 reward, wasn't it? I believe you're right. Yeah, I think so. We have a little bit of time left with our panel uh, as we talk about the 40th anniversary of the shootout in Medina. I just want to go around and, and uh, let each one of these individuals talk about how this might have affected their life, you know, in terms of journalism. Uh, they got about a minute each, but I know, Jim, you wanted to. Uh, I know there's a question of whether or not you're supposed to apologize to Scott Fall. Well, yeah, this was a stunner. I just as a lark, I, I sent letters to Yori Call and Scott Fall and tried to get an interview and Scott Fall wrote back and it just shows he hasn't changed a bit. He is still angry at the government, calls them names you can't say on the airwaves here, said he got a did not get a fair trial, uh, said that people in the media like me were responsible for his conviction and therefore he demanded an apology from me uh, in order for him to give me an interview. Well, obviously I'm not going to do that, but mm -hmm. But the, the, the crazy thing is, is, is the more that Scott Fall says that uh, and the more that Yuri Call sticks to that mindset, they're never going to get released. If this trial happened today, they would not be eligible parole. But now they are because of the system 40 years ago. And so uh, if they ever said that they have remorse and are sorry for what they did and admitted what they did, they could probably get out. Yeah. But they refuse to play that game. D Daryl, how did this this affect you as a journalist? Well, really strange. Uh, you know, I, I watched, and until this happened, I, I didn't know that, you know, I knew this was going on because I'd attended some meetings and we had interviewed some of these people. But, you know, he believed the government is nothing but an expansion of the Christian church. And there are a lot of people out there today that believe that kind of thing. And they want the U.S. Con they think the U.S. Constitution was derived from the Bible. He and the uh, posse believed they were sovereign and didn't have an obligation to have a driver's license, to pay income taxes, birth certificates, social security cards. And basically what it really did is this was the beginning of Oklahoma City, Ruby Ridge. This was the first shot, okay? And how did it change my world and, and your world? Well, it changed the news media entirely until this shortly thereafter uh we, we had a deregulation of broadcasting okay that's how you ended up with the crazies like rush limbaugh and alex jones and and uh you know they go out there and they talk and they are the people that, that keep this kind of thing going i mean we have a guy in in bismarck that's on the air at night called Stu peters who, who every night talks about you get a shot, you're going to die. You get a shot, you're yeah. going to die. I mean, you know, it's totally, totally crazy. And he is sponsored by Beck Electric Cooperative out of Steel, North Dakota. They put that station together, okay? Cooperatives used to be informational gathering places where the truth was told and that kind of thing. And they let this happen. And not only that, there are several board members who get a lot of federal money every year. 
and still they let this kind of thing go on. Jack, how bad I want to I want to make sure everybody gets in though. Jack, well, I'll tell you what it did for me as a relatively young journalist up up at Devil's Lake is it uh, showed me. You know, I had this uh, idyllic uh, vision of agriculture, of American agriculture, the American farmer, uh, but this farm crisis was deepening. And I didn't realize how deep it was and how serious it was and how many people were being hurt until this incident and the incidents surrounding it uh, covered some of those meetings, as I told you, before the, mm-hmm. before the shooting. And so I think uh, in some ways it made me a better journalist because it helped me to understand what was going on in, the, in, the, in a part of the country that I was covering as a journalist, a small part of the country. And it was deep and it was serious and it's still there. And and just as an aside, for people who are not as old and wise as, as we all think we are, um, I would recommend that uh, you find the archive, uh, the form archive, uh, inform archive, and read Jim's Shaw's stories. That's January 14th, January 21st, January 28th. That is, it's a wonderful retrospective, historical retrospective, and bringing this thing up to date that would really give you a good picture of it. And the other recommendation i jim corcoran's book bitter harvest which i just learned is uh, still available online uh for what nine bucks yep. nine yep. bucks and uh, and so i would recommend those two resources for those who didn't live it and would like to know more about it okay paul you did a lot of homework on this you're 21 how did it affect you uh you know i'd never covered anything like this this was my first trial uh and i was uh scared to death i uh, had to learn a lot from other reporters who had covered uh, federal court, courts in general, and I really didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I worked for KFGO, and I had to, uh, I had to do the best I could, and I did. I think I did a, a fair job. I had a lot of support here with people back at the station, but it was, uh, it was my trial to cover, and I learned something about courtroom decorum uh, during the course of the of the case. Uh, one of the f- deputy marshals, courtroom security, pulled me out of the courtroom, and I thought, oh, oh what's happened here? What's going on? And he said. Mr. Jurgens, yes. Judge Benson wanted you to know that your shirt tail is hanging out. Could you tuck in your shirt tail? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, a text message comes in and says, I yeah, talked to Scott cool. Fall's daughter, and I'm a very good friend. She's married to a good friend of mine. She told me her dad will never get out. They'll plant something in his cell. Thanks, guys. Good riding with you.